Welcome to Emory Innovators, a series of conversations between the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, and Emory alumni who are innovation leaders or entrepreneurs, or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Welcome everyone who is in the room and on Zoom uh, to this live recording of Emory Innovators. Uh, Emory Innovators showcases conversations with Emory faculty, staff, and alumni who work in innovation and entrepreneurship or have taken innovative approaches to their careers uh, and disrupting their industries. I'm Ben Garrett. I'm the Innovation Programming and Operations Manager here at the Hatchery, and we are very excited to be joined by Lauren Weinberg, uh, alum of uh, Emory. Uh, Lauren is the Chief Marketing Officer of Square, where she leads global marketing and communications for the $100 billion company that provides business solutions for millions of brand uh, small business owners all over the world. She has been named on Forbes CMO Next Brand Innovators, Top Women in Marketing, FinTech Hub's 30 Most Influential FinTech Marketers, uh, and prior she has held leadership roles at Yahoo, MTB, and AOL. She is an Adweek executive mentor and advises early stage startups. Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So to kick things off today, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your time at Emory. Sure. So um, my time at Emory was amazing. Um, was here for four years. I was an English and journalism major, minor in art history and um, met my husband here and um, had just an amazing four-year experience here. Um, many of the students we speak to uh, at the Hatchery have questions about successfully managing the transition from student life to professional life. How did you manage that transitional moment and finding work? Uh, and did you have any difficulty in translating lessons learned from your studies and extracurriculars into your professional endeavors? So one of the things that's interesting about my program when I was at Emory is the journalism program. I don't remember the exact hour number, but I think it was like 200 hours of internship throughout your time in the program. And so I worked a lot when I was at Emory. I worked at CNN. I worked at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I worked at Jezebel Magazine. And so I felt like I, I had a lot of work experience before I graduated. And then I was ready to graduate a semester early, but I didn't want to leave school, obviously. And so um, I had a job in, in a PR firm for my last semester when I was here. So I would say that like my studies definitely helped me. And, and I think having great communication skills, both written and verbal is really important and a skill that has served me really well in my career. But I also think that having all of that work experience was really helpful. So when I graduated and I moved to New York and I got a job, it wasn't the first time that I was really kind of entering into the corporate world. Mm -hmm. um, no, that's really helpful. I'm, I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about the written and verbal, because we we sometimes hear from humanities students that there's a difficulty in articulating how studies in humanities translate into different professional uh, environments. And I would imagine those written and verbal skills are kind of like an across the board. If you're a humanities person, that's probably a superpower that you have. So I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about how those two skill sets 
have been a benefit to you over your career? Yeah. So I think that's a great question and it's something that comes up a lot. And I think that, you know, in a world where you have so much technology and AI, there's also this need to balance that with like the human element of work and having um, really good communication skills and being able to connect with people is critical, in my opinion, to being successful. I think probably, and we'll talk a little bit about my career journey, but being able to form relationships with people who are not like you, being able to influence people who have a different point of view than you, which comes from being able to write well and speak well and effectively. And I also would say that the journalism program at Emory, I think, helped me become a good storyteller. And that I think is goes kind of hand in hand with being able to influence people. And, and I think that is a skill that I've been able to take with me everywhere in my career. But I'll just say when we hire people at Square for really senior roles, we give them a written assignment mm -hmm. before we hire them because a lot of the way that we communicate in our company is through written docs. And so we need people who are really good at what they do, but also can write really well. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, something that entrepreneurs and corporate innovators uh, often must innovate is their own career path. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you could share a story of a time when you consciously applied innovation practices to designing your career. Yeah, so I would say I don't think I really designed my career, if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. And I, I talked to a lot of people today who know exactly what they want to do. And that just was never me. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely think I've applied innovation to getting me on my career path. But I, and I think that comes in a couple of different ways. So when I think about innovation, and I talk to people about innovation a lot, um, I think innovation, a lot of people think innovation is solving new problems. I think innovation is like a new approach to solving problems that already exist. And so I will say in my career, I definitely have always like started off by listening to what people are saying and then thinking about ways to solve a problem in a different way. And there's three things I think that I look for in people. And, and I think they're the, the skills that are the traits that I have had that have helped me navigate my career. The first is curiosity. And so I think just, you know, obviously there's a lot of curious students here and asking questions and being curious and wanting to understand like why something is done a certain way versus just accepting that when people say, oh, cause we've always done it this way. I think everyone that is on my team at Square knows that that's my least favorite answer to a question. Um, and then having a lot of like conviction if you wanna try to do something a new way and courage cause just, you, I try new things all the time and some of them fail and I have a lot of conviction behind the things that I want to go do. And I think those are the things that have helped me navigate my career. So I've been in situations and I've seen other opportunities and I've raised my hand and said, I've never done that before, but I think I could do it. And can I have the chance to do it? And I think if you put yourself out there and you really ask for those things, like that's how you make movement in your career. And I think by showing people that you're curious and you have a lot of conviction behind your ideas, like I get excited when I see people coming in to my team that display those characteristics. Yeah, um, the, the curiosity conviction combo sounds like a particularly a really powerful one to me. There's interesting research basically where like 
the more uh, the more someone knows sometimes the less confident they are in a particular field because they know how much there is that they still don't know. Um, so I'm curious for you, are there different ways that you for yourself balance curiosity and conviction? That's a good question. I mean, I think, well, it depends on your work culture. So I think one of the things about Square is it's a culture that really embraces this notion of just like, you can take a risk and you can say, I thought this would do this and it didn't, but here's what I learned and everyone celebrates you for that kind of, we call it like a fail forward. Um, and so I, it's, I think like as a leader in the company, we try to create like a safe environment so people feel like it's okay to take risks. And, and I always tell them like some of these things are not gonna work and that's okay too. As long as you learn something from that, then that's fine. So I, I hear what you're saying, but I think at the end of the day, like there's so much I don't know. I hire people all the time that know more than me and that's why I hire them. And I think just, whatever you're gonna go do, like you should have conviction about it. It doesn't mean that you know that you're right. right. It just means that you have like an idea or a hypothesis and you really wanna go at it like full steam ahead and you may fall on your face and completely fail. But I think if you're half in it, you're never really gonna succeed to be honest because you're sort of just like too tentative. And I always tell people like, if you have an idea and you come to me with your idea and I ask you a bunch of questions and you start to sort of say like, oh, you don't know. Like I want people who come to me and say, here's why this idea is really good. And just, even if they're wrong about it, just to still have that conviction. Yeah, uh, well, and having that community and culture of like that you're communicating, I want you to care uh, even if it doesn't end up working out that value like you said is so important uh, it sounds like yeah you're very intentional in your teams and with the people that you work with of instilling that feeling of like safety for progress and experimentation i think it's a work in progress i think we sure. try really hard it's not always it's like sounds easier than it is because i think at the end of the day people still don't want to fail sure and so i think it's still scary to take those kind of risks absolutely um so it, it should be noted uh, that not only are you an innovator, but you work to support other innovators. Um, and this is certainly part of your work at Square, but it's also the core of your recently published book, <coughs> Self-Made Boss. Uh, so one, congratulations on the book. That Thank is you. no small thing. Uh, and could you tell us a little bit about Self-Made Boss and why you wrote it? So, um, well, thank you, first of all, and thank you for everyone that's here. Um, Self-Made Boss was really born out of this notion. So before I went to Square, I think it's worth noting, like, yes, I've worked in corporate jobs for most of my career, but I also went and started my own business before I went to Square. So I went to Square and I sort of had a lot of empathy for the businesses that we were marketing to, just in terms of how many things they need to do and a lot of people get into business for one reason and then they end up wearing so many different hats. So, you know, if you are a pastry chef and you open a bakery, it's because you really love that craft, but then you're the CEO. And so you have to be your chief legal officer and the financial officer and the HR person. And I think what we hear from business owners all the time is if, first of all, it's really hard to run your own business. It feels really lonely. And I think 
what we've heard time and time again from business owners is that they want to learn from other business owners. And so if I think about corporate America or just corporations globally anywhere, you know, there's lots of books in business schools that can teach you how corporations work. There's actually like a void of just practical advice for small business owners. And I think the idea for this book was, well, let's fill that void. And there's, the book is meant to be really approachable and just give you lots of really like pragmatic advice on if you run a business, you can read the book like from cover to cover, or you could literally just go to the chapter that is the most pressing thing for you. So if you get this book and you run a business and you're thinking about hiring someone, you just go to the chapter on hiring and read that chapter. And so that was really the idea behind the book was we could fill this void and give lots of millions and millions of business owners, like really practical advice that will help them succeed and just create more of a sense of community mm-hmm. amongst business owners everywhere who tell us all the time that it just can feel really lonely. Sure. Um, and I'm, I'd like to sort of ask the same question, but like with a slightly different emphasis, which is uh, why write a book? Like there are so many kinds of pieces of content that you can make. I'm curious, what about a book in particular appealed to you? Well, I love books. So I think I read books all the time and like that's how I learn. And so, and I think this is very much like a guidebook. And so at Square, like we produce a ton of content. We have video content, we have podcasts that we produce. And so there's lots of different forms of content. And I guess what I was thinking about this and why I write a book is there's a checklist at the end of each chapter. And I think it's something that you can kind of go back to time and time again. And I guess it's because for me, I always have learned a lot through reading. And so I thought if we're gonna put information out there that's really practical and that you can kind of come back to time and time again and you can take notes and you can sort of reference it as a guide that a book is sort of the best format for that. Sure, no, that uh, that permanence and being able to find the exact spot and find the dog ear that you have and all of that stuff is really special. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's super cool. Um, okay, so you mentioned that when you're talking with small business owners and entrepreneurs, uh, that they want to hear from other small business owners and other entrepreneurs, which I think really ties in well to our next question, which is, could you tell us about uh, the research process for this book? Yeah. So, um, well, so in my position at Square, I talk to business owners all the time. And actually, one of the things that we do at Square is we cast a lot of business owners in our commercials mm-hmm. and in our content. And so, we have like a vast resource of just amazing business owners that have incredible stories that have just done, I mean, there's so many of them to be honest. Um, And so we started off with, it was almost like a casting process. So the first step of the book was to say, what do we want the chapters in the book to be? And then we thought about the people that we've known or have relationships with that we thought would be good for each of those chapters. But the other lens was just making sure that we have people from all over the country, different types of businesses, different types of people. And the idea was like, no matter who you are, what stage of business, the kind of business that you run or what your ethnic background is, like there's someone in this book that looks and feels like you and someone that you can relate to. Um, 
And so it was a very like intentional process of just people that we knew had really amazing stories, but there's also a lot of people that I know in the book, like my two roommates from college are in the book, my dad is in the book. Um, and so there's lots of people just that we knew that were running businesses and doing interesting things. And so it was really that process. And then we interviewed them. And in the beginning, our interviews were sort of more general, just tell us about your business. As we got further along in the process, we started to identify like the places that we had gaps. Mm -hmm. And so one of our chapters is about just like how like transitioning out of business or transitioning a business from one generation to another, if it's a family business and we didn't have anybody in the book that really mm -hmm. could match that criteria. And so that was when I went to one of my friends and roommates from college and she's in a family run business and she's fourth generation. And so wow. we were like sort of intentional about picking people for specific parts of the book where we knew we had those gaps. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so uh, I think continuing on that vein, um, why do you think it was so important to get perspectives directly from small business owners for a project like this? Because presumably at Square, y'all have plenty of data, mm -hmm. like hardcore numbers, spreadsheets, infographics, et cetera. Uh, so so why, why the interviews? Why the personal perspectives? I think that's the part. I mean, like, yes, Square can come out and say, here's how to run a business and here's all the things that we see from the millions of businesses that are on our platform. But I think what makes this interesting and more like approachable is that it's actually told from the point of view of the business owner in their voice and in a way that I think if you run your own business will resonate with you a lot more. It's kind of like just someone talking at you versus someone talking with you. And I think that the idea was it's people talking in really approachable terms. It doesn't sound like it's coming from a corporation. It's very just practical and pragmatic advice. And I don't, I don't think you can get that unless you're getting it directly from the people that have been there and done that. And we wanted it to be feel really authentic. And I, I, I just don't think there's a way to get that authenticity without talking directly to people who actually like sit in those shoes and do that job every day. And we wanted people reading the book to feel like, oh, it's not like you could read a business book anywhere. And I think this one, we wanted to be different in the fact that it was meant to be like, yes, I can see myself in this. I mean, I think one of the things that we didn't talk about is just how many businesses there are and how many people are starting new businesses right now and so i think that was the other part which is well first of all like small business is huge business and i think just obviously like the backbone of our economy but there's like 30 million small businesses in the u.s alone and in 2020 was like a record-breaking number of new business starts and then 2021 was the great resignation and people are not quitting their jobs to just sit at home they're quitting their jobs to go start their own business and so we felt like the time was right now for people are really kind of taking this moment to reevaluate their priorities and what they want to do. And a lot of people want to start their own thing. And so we thought like this would be a good time to put something like this out there that would really resonate with like a whole new cohort of new business owners that are just getting started. Mm -hmm. So one thing that's sticking out to me as you're describing this process and the way that you're thinking about the timing, uh, you sound a little bit like a journalist. <laughs> 
And so I'm, I'm curious, like, to what extent were you like intentionally leaning on your experience uh, preparing for a career in journalism and, and practicing the discipline of journalism as you were writing this book? That's a good question. And to be honest, I don't know the answer to it because sure. I think that 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 training that I got in terms of just like communication and interviewing people like has just been with me for my entire career. And so it's always been a part of, I think, just the way that I communicate. So I don't even see it or realize it anymore. But I think that, I mean, I, I think it's just there, but it's also just been with me for, I mean, I've been working for like over 20 years. And so it's just been a part of like how I do work. Yeah, that's cool. Um, all right. Uh, so I'm curious with all of these conversations that you're having, I am sure that there were certain pieces of information that you were really trying to surface, certain pieces of data experiences that were like very intentional. I'm curious, were there some things that just surprised you that when you're out having these conversations, uh, you, you found yourself saying, I did not expect to hear that, or I thought the exact opposite thing. And now from this person's perspective, I'm really switching gears on how I understand that. I think the first thing is that I didn't know if people would talk to us because mm -hmm. I think just knowing how busy and how just time constrained, like if you ask someone who runs their own business, what's the thing that they want more of? It's more hours in the day. And that's the number one answer all the time. And so I was surprised, I think initially that people were excited to be part of our process and just so generous with their time, given how little time that they have. So that was probably the first part. We thought it's going to be really hard to get people to want to talk to us, to do these interviews with us. But actually, people were really excited to share their experiences and to sort of pass along the wisdom and insights that they had gained throughout their time. And then there's tons of little stories. Um, and I guess if I had to boil it down, I would say it's the resilience and the grit of business owners. And obviously a lot of this research took place during the pandemic. And so I think, you know, we were talking to people who were really kind of like pushed to their limits in terms of just like really going into survival mode. And there's an oyster farmer in the book who um, was pretty new in his business. And I think maybe like three to five years in, was in a really good place selling oysters to all the best restaurants in New York and then the pandemic came mm -hmm. and all the restaurants shut down. And he, I think in a matter of weeks, pivoted his business to a direct-to-consumer business. And he talked about um, how he had a friend who developed software for bus routes and he worked with his friend to optimize his driving routes so that he could be more efficient in his delivery. And there's there's just a lot of examples of people doing like incredible things like that of just so smart, so resilient, just incredibly like whatever it takes to get the job done. And so there, there's obviously there's that example. There was a lot of really emotional stories in the book. There's a woman, um, she's probably one of my favorite people in the book. Her name is Letitia Hankey and she runs a solar and roofing business in California. And she's a black woman. And she works in an industry that A, is just like not, does not have a lot of females and definitely not a lot of black females. And just the, 
racism that she encountered early in her career. And she told us a story of like the first time that she went to go meet a client and they just were like, didn't want to work with her. And they said really terrible things to her. And she drove around the corner and she said, she just like sat in her car and bawled her eyes out. But then she went back to her office and put her face on her website and said, from now on, like, I want everyone that works with me to know who they're working with. And so there's just a lot of examples of, of people just doing like really whatever it takes, I would say, to just figure out how to make their business thrive and succeed. And it's one of the reasons why I love my job at Square. And it's also one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because there are just these incredible stories and the things that people have done to keep their business afloat are like exactly like when we talk about innovation, like that oyster farmer, that's innovation. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just so much like incredible insight in there. Yeah, um, I might have to get the name of the direct consumer oyster business from you. That sounds I'm Pico both, Pico oysters. Okay, I'm I'm both really intrigued and also a little nervous about receiving oysters in the mail. Yeah, but I'm intrigued. Yeah, so now obviously like restaurants are back open again, and now okay. he's got these like dual revenue streams, yeah. and so he's back in the restaurants, but he also has this like direct to consumer business mm -hmm. as well, and so he like I think it's been. I think that's one of the things that's been really interesting for a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners is that they like they had to find new revenue streams during the pandemic but now as the world reopens they have additional revenue streams it's really changed the way a lot of these businesses do business it's, it's really amazing to see yeah that's really interesting um all right so uh coming to kind of our final question before opening up to the audience um you mentioned that innovation uh, is often solving not necessarily new problems, um, but in some cases, very long-standing problems in new ways. So I'm curious, um, what is a long-standing problem that you are looking ahead and interested in maybe trying to solve? There's a lot of things I'll say, like, as it relates to this topic, like, I would love to see more people succeed at running their own business. And that was like a big motivation for writing the book. I think not just because small business is an important part of our economy, but also because small businesses are a really important part of our like towns and our communities. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think when you think about your town, like you want the businesses in your town to succeed. And you maybe didn't think about that before COVID, but then when those businesses became threatened and you thought about like, what would your town be like if the restaurant wasn't there anymore? And if there was no nail salon or none of these things that really kind of make up your local community, people all of a sudden started to care a lot more and they started buying gift cards and doing whatever they could to support their local economies. And so, I think obviously that's a cause that's really near and dear to my heart. And I think just, I wanna see more of that. I think that that makes our communities like unique and amazing and special. And so that's important to me. And then I think the other thing is really climate. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to do about that yet. One of my coworkers at Square just left the company um, to go work on um, just being an advocate for climate change. And so I was like, well, that's a good reason to leave. Thank you for doing that. And so I would love to see, I would love to have time 
to really think about what I could do there other than the things that you do every day. I'd like sure. to do your own part, but I think we all need to do more to be honest to solve that problem. Sure, thank you. Yeah. Um, would love to open it up to this audience or you on the line audience. Uh, so if you are on Zoom, feel free to uh, either send a message. Kate, who is manning our tech, will moderate that. But also, folks in the room, if you all have any questions that you would like to ask. Yeah, I have three very different categories of questions. And I'm going to ask the first category first, just because of other um, but the first category, so I currently work with the Hatchery closely on a nonprofit I'm running. And two of the main issues that we run into is a lot of HR things that you have talked about. But I was wondering, one, how do you delegate in your team and how do you work with team roles? So sometimes I realize, especially in a smaller startup setting, like we're all kind of wearing different hats. Like, how do you start standardizing that? And my second question is, how do you keep team meetings efficient and members informed across projects? Because I'm assuming that like Square has a lot of different marketing projects all at once. So how do you keep one team on one side informed of other teams' projects without having these expensive meetings? Okay, I'll try to remember all your questions, but I'll start with the first <laughs> one around delegation. Um, and I think that's it's like one of the hardest things that every manager needs to do. And I think it, it gets to the point for a lot of people where they have no choice. They have to delegate something because they just can't do everything anymore. And so I would say like, I mean, I think when I, whenever I coach people, I'm like, just do it, just delegate something. And then one of the things that I always tell people, and I, I think like when we do training for managers, we talk about being a coach versus a rescuer. And so I think the job of managers who are delegating tasks is to coach people, which means they're not always gonna do something in the same way that you would do it. This is kind of advice that I give to people on my team all the time, which is your job as a manager is to coach people to find their way of doing it, which may be different than <laughs> your way, but it just gets to the outcome versus rescuing people, which is when you see somebody floundering, you just jump in and you take the project from them, which I think feels really demoralizing for the people. And then they're not actually learning how to do it themselves. And so I would say when it comes to delegation, you just, you just have to do it. And then you have to just be comfortable with the fact that someone's going to do something and it's not going to be the way that you would do it. And then think about what your role is and just encouraging them to get it to the finish line in a way that works for them. And you too. <laughs> what was your second question again about yeah. about meetings? Meetings. So how do you keep team meetings efficient and members informed across projects? Yeah. So a meeting agendas. Um, and I think we always have meeting agendas. And even in one-on-one -on -one meetings, if there's no agenda, there's no meeting. And so I had a meeting with my boss yesterday and I was like, I don't have any agenda items to you. No, okay, let's cancel it. And so I think like we use meeting agenda. So just make sure that we're not wasting time. And then we have a lot of priorities. And so in my leadership team meeting every Monday, everybody says top five things that are their, their priorities for the week. And we each read each other's and we don't talk about it unless someone has a question, but it just gives us visibility into like what's top of mind for everybody. And if you have a question about somebody else's priority, then you can say, wait, 
what's that thing you're working on? Um, or like, I don't know about that. Or why is that a priority this week? Just to get more context. I don't know if that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Questions. I've got one online if we don't immediately have one. We we do immediately have, but I want I do want to keep things equitable. So what's right. the online question? All right, and I'm going to rephrase this a little bit so that maybe you can also answer from some of your research. Um, but when does somebody know that it's the right time to start their own business, and how do they know that they have the right idea to invest in? Well, whoever asked that question should read the book. Um, <laughs> and so, but I think. It comes down to a couple of things. And one is, I think, like a very practical thing, which is cash flow. And so I think it's important when you're starting a business to have some amount of savings. And, and that looks different for everybody. But I think starting a business with no nest egg at all is really scary because you're going to burn through cash and there's going to be unexpected things. So I think that's one thing. And then I, the other piece I would say is thinking about just what's your business plan. And one of the things that we talk about in the first chapter of the book, which is called getting started is just, is exactly that. Like, how do you know when it's time? Part of it is around saving money. The other part is around having an idea and a plan and enough of a safety net. And the other part is just your personal constitution. I think if you are going to run your own business, then you need to be really resilient and scrappy. And so I think we try to ask questions at the end of that chapter that really just ask people to just be self-aware and reflect on, do you have this in you? It's not for everybody. I think like, like that's one of the things is like you'll hear from a lot of business owners, like it's not for the faint of heart. It's really, really hard. You're constantly solving problems. You're going to run into a lot of roadblocks along the way. And so I think it's like, you need to know whether you have it in yourself. So like you have enough passion and conviction to keep going even when it gets hard. Yes, sir. Uh, what would you say like your main role or focuses as CMO? Hmm. So primarily on driving awareness and consideration, but like of Square and our products and solutions, but ultimately it's around driving revenue growth. And so my job is primarily to bring customers into Square's ecosystem. Yeah, I was gonna say something that I've been learning recently through my experience in both in research and innovation is that for many different endeavors in life, so much comes down to marketing mm -hmm. and being able to take an idea and sell it to other people, whether that idea is mm -hmm. like, you want to accept this paper or you want to hire me or you want to buy this product or you want to change your stance on this issue, whatever it is. Um, and I'm curious what recommendations you would have to to someone from from a non-business discipline to, to learn how to better market themselves or their ideas or things like that, um, resources that you would offer, practical suggestions, things like that. I think the first thing is to know your audience. And like, I, I always say there's this thing that we talk about a lot or that I learned early on in my career is the WIFM, the what's in it for me. And so thinking about the person that you're pitching yourself or your idea and 
Like, what do they care about and what's in it for them? And I, I think that's the most important thing, which is understanding, like, how do you make them care about it and demonstrate that there's something in it for them? Because not to be whatever, but I think just at the end of the day, like people are kind of looking out for themselves. And if you're not saying something that resonates with them is valuable for them, or you're going to, are you going to make them look better at their job or whatever it is that you're doing? But I think that's the most important thing is really knowing your audience, what's important to them, what they care about. And then when you're speaking to them or marketing to them or or pitching to them that you've thought about what's in it for them that's going to make what you're saying really resonate and, and engaging for them. Yes, sir. Can you speak a little bit to your career like path and the different skills and people that you've met over time that like accumulated today into like what you're doing now? Yeah, that's a good question. Also, my career I like to describe as somewhat of a happy accident because I think unlike a lot of probably all of you that are really like have a, like a very firm idea of what you want to do, I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated. Um, and so I started off in one thing and I started working like right in the dot-com sort of like right before the dot-com bubble burst. And so a couple things, one is that I think maybe at that time companies were more likely to hire people that had no experience because it was such a new frontier. And so it was kind of like, well, none of us know what we're doing. So sure, we'll hire like a recent college grad. Um, and so that was really interesting. And I, I would say for me, like I got thrown into the deep end when the bubble burst because a lot of people got let go in my first job. And I was the like probably the cheapest person there because I was the least experienced. And so it made sense to keep me. And I ended up with like way more responsibility than I should have. And I think that's probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me because I had no idea what I was doing. And I remember saying to my boss, like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. And he said, sink or swim, because if you can't do it, someone else will do this job. And I was like, okay. And so I think like for me, then I, that sort of gave me this notion of like, well, I should do things that I don't know how to do. So my job started off like on research and insights. And so I would say, and then I sort of pivoted to this, I was an analyst, which is kind of like a nice combination of research and insights, but then bringing in my journalism background. And I would write about like industry trends and things that were happening in the dot-com world when things were really nascent. Like I remember talking about Google before anybody knew what Google was. Um, and then like, Along the way, I think I probably just like picked up skill sets and I worked with people in marketing. And then as I got like older and more mature in my career, I started thinking about how to put multiple, multiple pieces together. But I also think I was very lucky throughout my career to have just amazing mentors and people that most of the jobs that I've had I got to from someone else that I worked with before. And so I would say like the relationships are key. Um, I think probably after my first job, I got through a relationship and then pretty much every job after that was like somebody that I met that knew me and, and people that I had worked with before. And that was really great for me. And even for people that I didn't work with before, I think just I think the biggest pivot that I made in my career was at Yahoo. Like most of my career was like research and insights and analytics and strategy and talking about like 
how you could do marketing, but not doing actual marketing. And when I was at Yahoo, I asked our CMO, I was like, I know that I don't have any experience in some of these areas, but I really think I could do it better than how we do it today, because I think we need to take a more data-driven approach than what we're doing. And I feel like I could take these things and go to that. And I think just because she trusted me and I'd been there for a while, she said, yeah, go do that. And I think that was like a point in my career where I really pivoted into marketing. And then I was like, oh, this was probably the thing that I should have been doing all along because it was like the part of my job that I really love. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it was kind of like, I would say like, I think in marketing in particular, if people are interested in marketing, people come up in a lot of different ways. There's the creative side, there's the data side, and there's the media side. And I think for me, like I came from data, then I went into media, and then really only in my job at Square is when I really have started to like really get a lot of experience on the creative side and like being on shoots. And so you don't need to have all of the components to do a job. You only need some of them. I think that's like one thing that I tell people all the time. And just because you're not an expert in something doesn't mean that you can't help guide those teams because my job is to have a different vantage point than other people on the team. So even though I'm not an expert in creative the way our head of creative and design is, I still like understand how to think about creative in the business context. Um, my next question is kind of different from what I asked before, but it's like, how did you balance like, uncertainty in your college years versus how you balance uncertainty now? Like, it seems like you moved around a lot. And like, I feel like, especially as a college student and undergrad, it's like looking into like what you want to do. It is very uncertain. Um, and especially when you were starting your business as well, I'm sure there was a lot of uncertainty where it's like you jump from corporation to starting your own business. So how did you grapple with that type of uncertainty and found the courage to like, keep going. So when I was in college, I'm just going to be honest and say that like, I don't think it even like dawned on me to worry about uncertainty. I just, I wasn't worried about it. Um, I, I like, well, I thought for a while I would be a journalist and then I did that program and then it was good because I realized while I was in that program that I didn't want to be a journalist. And then I thought I was going to go to law school. And so I took my LSAT and I applied for law school. Then I thought, no, maybe I'll work for a little bit. And so I guess in a lot of ways, I, I didn't like have my eye on an end site. And then like I was always doing interesting work and things were going well for me. So I just, I didn't really worry that much about it. And then when it came to starting my own business, I was consulting in an area that I knew really well. And so when I left Yahoo, I'd been there for six years. I first took the summer off because I was like the first time, even though I'm a mom and I had kids, I, I just did not really ever get a break. And so after being there, I was like, I, I don't want to work for like a month or two. And so, um, which was amazing. And then during that time, a lot of people called me and I said, I'm not taking any calls for recruiters. And people said, but would you do a project for me? And I said, maybe I would do a project for you, but I'm not gonna do a project for you now. And then I thought, well, all these people are calling me and asking me to do projects for them. So maybe I should just do that because I wasn't really, I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly when I left Yahoo, I wanted to leave media. And so then I thought, well, I could take this skill set and go consult with a bunch of companies that are not media companies as a test to myself to see if my skill set is applicable in other things. And so I didn't worry that much about the uncertainty, but I guess part of that is because just like along the way, things 
worked out. And so maybe I'm lucky, but I also just never really stressed that much about when things were uncertain. I always felt confident that I would like land on my feet. I don't know why. I just did. <laughs> Got one on my yeah. Um, this one I'm going to sum up a little bit, but it says you spoke about wanting this book to create community. While there are books that create fandoms, um, building community around print can be a challenge. So what are some things that you've done beyond print to create community for this book? Mm -hmm. So I've never wrote a book before, so forever asked the question. And, and so there's a lot, it's been a huge learning experience for me, but Obviously, Square is a company that cares a lot about small businesses. And I think one of the things that we realized in this process is there's a lot of companies that already have community. And so we're doing a lot of work with them. Um, so like Facebook and Nextdoor and even just like a lot like American Express, Citibank, a lot of these companies have a lot of communities of business owners. And so we are working with them to bring the content to them and to do like Q and A's and, and a bunch of, it's still like early days. The book has been out for not even a month yet. Um, and so, but that's one thing that we're doing, which is, and Square has a community. And so just thinking about like, how do we bring that to the community there? Um, we did something at Square too. We actually brought some of the business owners and my co-author and I, and we did a panel session for our company. And it was really, I think just, and it was just great because even the people that were on the panel after the panel said like, I want your number, like, can we call each other so that we can talk more often? And so I think even just bringing people together in this book and anything that we do with them does create a sense of community, but we're working within existing communities because it's very hard to build new communities. So I think we're trying to just kind of go to the communities that exist and, and bring this content there. Go for anything. Okay, so this one's more of a marketing question because I uh, know you're the CMO. <laughs> but what is Square's vision for future vision for marketing? Like with all this talk about the metaverse and Web 3.0, like what is Square going there? And what is your personal opinion on that? So like, what is your personal future for marketing? So my vision for our team, so I think that Square isn't a really amazing brand, but it's not an iconic brand. And so my like vision for Square is that like we can become an iconic brand. And if you are thinking about or starting to run your own business, like you immediately think of Square as that platform that's going to power your brand. And we talk a lot about what does it mean to be an iconic brand? Um, I think Nike is an iconic brand and iconic brands, in my opinion, like, you know what they stand for. It's not just their functionality. And, and I think for us as a brand, we're just starting to scratch the surface on like, how do we do that? And what does that look like? And so that's exciting for us because I think there's like a lot of runway. Our space is really crowded. And even though Square was one of the first in the space, I think for us to really continue to be differentiated and top of mind for people. Like we need to find a position for ourselves that's different. And I think that will be how we connect with people on an emotional level, because running a business is probably the most personal thing that you can do. And even though what we do is very like functional and there's a lot of tools and utilities that help you run a business, like we actually make people's lives better because 
you can do a lot on our platform that makes it easier for you. And that just gives you more time back as an entrepreneur for other things in your life. And so we're trying to figure out the right way to show up and make that connection with people so that like we can become an iconic brand in the future. So when it comes to like metaverse and web 3.0, you know, I, I would say, I don't know yet. I think, you know, obviously Block, which is Square's parent company, is very bullish on Bitcoin. And I think that like Bitcoin and blockchain technology and Web 3.0 being much more um, of an advocate for consumer privacy, like those are really good things and they will happen. There's a lot of components of the metaverse, like NFT art galleries and things like that, that I think are interesting, but not necessarily like, I'm like, I don't understand what to do with those things just yet. But I think the fundamentals of web three, which is blockchain and more security, like those are things that will create more safety and security for consumers. And I think just create a better global economy. And so I think those things are here to stay. And I, and how we show up as a brand in those things, I don't know yet. Um, so one thing I want to make sure that we do, Lauren, is where where should people find your book? Where should they go buy it? Well, it's well, so we have a website, it's selfmadeboss.com, and you can buy it at bookstores, you can buy it on Amazon. Um, and so you can go to our website, you can see all the ways that you can buy it. And you can see a little bit more on the site as well about who's in the book. So there's a little bio on all the businesses that are in there and you can see what the chapters are. So if you are not sure if you want to buy it yet, you can go to our site and, and poke around a little bit more, but you can buy it on, you know, anywhere books are sold essentially. Awesome. Um, well, one Thank you everyone for being here this evening. Thank you folks who Zoomed in this evening. Uh, and Lauren, thank you so much for being with us, uh, sharing both from your perspective, but then also the perspectives of all these small business owners. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you to everyone both online and in the room for all of your great questions. It was really fun to be here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emory Innovators. To hear additional episodes, search Emory Innovators on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.